Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, we are joined by Mr. Jerry Bradley. He is a retired music executive. He's had a long list of achievements. He's engineered, produced records. He became the head of RCA Nashville in 1973. Some of the many artists his career has intersected with would include Charlie Pride, Alabama, Dolly Parton, Ronnie Millsap, Willie Nelson, and Waylon Jennings. That's just the tip of the iceberg. In 2019, Jerry Bradley was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame, an honor he shares with his father, Owen Bradley, and his uncle, Harold Bradley. He's a man with a great story. Mr. Jerry Bradley, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Thank you for that introduction. I didn't realize all that had happened. (laughs) (laughs) So how are you, sir? I'm doing pretty good for an old-timer. But thank God for serious music or radio. I kind of like that. That that lets you keep for what generation you want to listen to. (laughs) I'm a fan of Sirius XM myself. What channels do you find yourself listening to? Oh, uh, Outlaw County and Country, and uh, I hate to admit it, but I do listen to more talk than I really should. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Well, you were born in Nashville. What are your earliest memories of growing up in the Bradley House? Mm, going to WSM radio with my father and you know, sitting in the audience while he was in the band, and he worked up there on radio, noontime neighbors, and oh, a Sunday, Sunday down south, and uh, we'd have uh, have barbecues with a guy named Snooky Lanson. I don't know if you've ever heard of Snooky, but Snooky was on the hit parade, and uh, he he did very well, and he went on to New York, and. Uh, he wasn't necessarily a country star, but he was a, a great singer. And, uh, you know, those things, uh, hanging around the, the radio studio, WSM, I remember that. Now then that led to recording studios uh, my dad built. And he had about three or four of those. And I was in at least three of them. You know, in the last one, Bradley's Barn, uh, I was involved in helping. You know, I didn't do a lot of building. I wasn't a carpenter, but I was uh, took some part in uh, helping him get that thing going. Bradley's Barn is a pretty legendary. I mean, it's it's a it's a place people have talked about. There's even a an album that was done in tribute to it. Yeah. I'm hoping you can tell us, how would you describe this place, Bradley's Barn? Well, it was an old barn, and he bought it, and they had had cows in it for years. And he knocked the ends out of it and hired a bulldozer to clean it out. And uh, then he got a contractor to come up and put a concrete floor in it and... and uh, put some uh, wire cables across it to keep it from splitting 
uh, under pressure and, uh, you know, it was, it was actually an old barn and he, 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 he put it, when he put it back together, he put it, my dad, like a dead studio, not a live studio, something you can control the sound on. And, uh, that's where I came from because other studios were live. Studio B, for instance, at RCA was a, had a different sound to it, had a tinny sound to it and nothing wrong with that. But I learned and, uh, really helped fix one of the RCA studios back at, with a dead sound. It sounded more like, uh, the barn, uh, than, uh, Studio B. And, uh, I'm not taking anything away from Studio B because many, many hit records were cut in RCA Studio B. And, but it was a it was uh it was a dead a dead room and uh used a lot of baffles around instruments to so you could keep the uh channels clean without drum leakage or something leakage on uh, the microphones but uh, that that's what it was and uh we made it things there, there wasn't any modern colored burlap at that time my dad knew people made burlap bags believe it or not in nashville and i remember going down buying uh, rolls of burlap brown burlap from uh, these people that uh, i can't think of their name but owned uh, a burlap company bags that they put feed and seed in and anyhow so he went down bought the burlap and it had hired a carpenter and told him to put it on 42 inches and on centers. And the carpenter thought it was crazy because most people put those things on 18 inches or some, some other number. I'm not real sure what it was, but, but anyhow, he said, well, that ain't going to work. The seam's not going to be right. My dad told him, said, I don't care what the seams are. Put it on four on uh, 42 and so he did, and uh, then my dad took strips of wood and covered the seams, and so the walls were basically insulation and burlap bags, and well, burlap material, not bags. It, you know, it was a big roll of it. And anyhow, that's uh, he was he was very conscious of what went into the microphone. He wanted to control that. So as time moved on, went from two track to three track to four track to sixteen track or eighteen eight track to uh, sixteen track. Well, uh, he was way ahead because uh, he had control of all the instruments, and he was doing that different than anybody in town at that time. But that's what. Well, what him let let you control the the sound, and you know he gave me the opportunity. I got back out of the army, and uh, he asked me what I was going to do, and uh, I told him, well, I might uh, try to get in that damn business you in, and we were riding in the car one day, and anyhow, he took me to New York. He wanted to make sure that his company knew what we were doing and he explained to him I was going to start a publishing company and got there okay and we came back 
to Nashville and I started a publishing company and with Harold. Uh, me and Harold had a little publishing company and he turned me loose with that and then he bought the barn about, uh, I don't know how many years later and turned it into a studio and I would uh, publish songs and then I'd run up to the barn and do a session and it's 20 miles from Nashville so I'd go up there and do sessions. We I stayed up there quite a lot. It, we me and a guy named Charlie Talent. Charlie was a engineer that kept the equipment going. And anyhow, we 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 got her going. And actually, it was about two years before my daddy ever came in there to record a record. Uh, hell, we'd already had some international acts that had heard about us and came in. The Who was one. And uh, Gordon Lightfoot from Canada came in. Oh, I don't know. It was triple more. But anyhow, he, somebody, Kitty Wells was the first one that my dad brought in down there to record. And it wasn't because uh, he suggested it. She had heard about it. And she came in and had uh, her son-in-law to call us and book the studio. It was Kitty Wells who uh, was the first act my dad had there. And the boys from Muscle Shows, David Briggs, Norbert Putman, Jerry Kerrigan, those guys started coming up here and uh, recording. And uh, anyhow, that uh, that kind of kicked it off. And uh, me and Charlie, we were... Very, very uh, busy, and I can remember, you know, we didn't have backup men and all that. Charlie did the session, or I did the session, and then I remember we'd get through at 2 o'clock in the morning, and the other one come in, lay on, or one would go lay on the couch and sleep till 8 o'clock in the morning because we had a pen ready to go at 10 o'clock in the morning, and that went on. I mean, those were long days, but people, we were in demand and had a lot of fun. I did that for, I guess, about 10 years. And uh, then I went over to RCA and, uh, you know, Chet Atkins called me. And uh, I never did, I pitched Chet some songs, but I always leave him at his desk. And but he called me one day and. I had a funny feeling about that call, and yeah, I kind of thought he might have been going to offer me a job, and then he didn't. So, you know, I was very excited about that, and so I left Bradley's Barn after ten. I think it was ten years. It was either ten or thirteen. I can't remember, but uh, I went on over to RCA and met the challenges of. Many, many managers and artists and different personalities. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I had learned a lot from my dad. It was, if you had those ingredients and you put a good song with them, good song would show you the way that, hmm. you know, it cost. I had a saying that he, taught, he told me it costs just as much to cut a good song as it does a 
bad songs. So hmm. that was kind of one of my rules. Let's get just get a good one. So that's kind of where I wound up, and I I kind of said to myself, if RCA and all their salesmen and promotion men and the organization that they had, if they could sell a deck of records, I could make them what kind of sounded like a deck of records because I had mixed all those sessions from my dad who ran DECA. So I made the records that I was taught how to make from my dad and found the best songs that I could and kind of just a couple of guidelines that I tried to follow that he had taught me. You know, he always had something to say that uh, meant a lot because people tell me, oh, I went to lunch with your dad. And I said, oh, really? I said, did you learn anything? What do you mean? I said, well, <laughs> did he give you any advice or did you just miss it? And I said, if you listen to him, he'll give you a lot of good advice. So, uh, and I believe that he did too. Uh, yeah, I had fun doing it. What would you say from all the advice, all of the things that you learned from your father, the late Owen Bradley, what do you think the biggest lesson was that you learned? Well, you're talking about from the record standpoint? Really anything. Well, I'll put it this way. From the, from the record is, is finding a great song, which I mentioned earlier. And, you know, pretty much just say how it is and, uh, you know, tell the truth and tell them what you really believe. And, uh, that, you know, be honest that that was, that was one of the things I learned. And, you know, the music was really, once you found the songs, you had to get the people. And I had David Briggs from Muscle Shows, I helped him move up to Nashville and paid him $50 a week. And I made 75 and got him all the session work that I could muster up for him. And we became good friends. And, uh, you know, the rest of it, it's, a, it's all about, the whole thing is all about finding a good song. It really, to me, that's where it is. And uh, if you hang around with Nashville musicians in a studio long enough uh, and you got a good song, it'll eventually cut itself, if you understand what I mean. Just Mm. get a bunch of guys together and they start playing and somewhere somebody's going to come up with a lick or come up with an intro or come up with something, but there were other people. There were other people that came in and Los Angeles, I understand is more like this, that they have everything written out. And it's going to be this way, this way, that way. Well, the way Nashville worked, you play the demo and then you would turn it over to the musicians. They would make their chart and, off they'd go and somebody would put together something, some lick or some something in the record 
that you like, and you kind of kept that and built your record about that. I used this guy named David Briggs, who was a piano player. I, I depended on him a lot in the studio. I was more or less a coach because I'm not a musician. I never. I, my dad played anything. I couldn't play a damn thing. I could play the radio if I could find the plug <laughs> or if I had four new batteries. So, <laughs> But I didn't try to hide it. I just got surrounded myself with the best musicians in uh, Nashville and tried to find the best song I could. I'm hoping you can tell us more about the legendary guitarist Chet Atkins. What was it like being around him? Well, <laughs> he he didn't have much to say. I remember riding in the car one day with him going to lunch, and my dad my dad could dress you down pretty good if you messed up, and so I I kept waiting on Chet to tell me how I was doing. I wondered the same thing. We were going to a restaurant, and I asked Chet, I said, well, Chet, how am I doing? And he ran back and took a big drag off his cigar and looked at me, and he said, you're doing all right. And that's all he said. That's, <laughs> I never asked him again. I went and I recorded some songs, and I said, well, I'll go play them for Chet. And I went and played them for Chet, and I had four songs, and he liked the first two, and I liked the last two. And uh, I went back to my office, and I put my head on the desk, and I thought, what in the world am I going to do? He likes these two. I don't like these two. And I made the decision then that I needed to go with what I believed and not him. So he didn't really give me, he didn't really give me any opinion. I think Chet wanted to leave the minute I got there and, uh, he just stayed and he turned it all over to me. And he was, you know, he, I never went to him asking him, what should I do in this situation or not? He didn't, I don't think he really cared. And somebody from New York came in. Well, I would sit and talk business to him, and Chet would take him to lunch. <laughs> <laughs> if that makes any sense to you, that's he was very quiet. He never, he never, uh, he never gave me the type of advice or criticism as my dad did. You know, does that make any sense to you? Yes, sir. I got you. Yeah. Yeah. He just kind of let me do what I did. And, uh, I did what I, you know, I did what I did. And when it started happening, uh, you know, everybody liked it. I put it that way. I've read about so many of the legendary recording acts and singers that you had the chance to witness making records, working in the studio. You mentioned a couple, you mentioned Gordon Lightfoot, the who, I've also read about Loretta Lynn, Joan Baez. Yeah. Who would you say that you observed in the studio that you thought, wow, this is the most impressive 
example of raw talent I've ever seen? Mm, well, Loretta would have to be up there. Now, you know, hell, I don't know if they had a good song they all were. I think the public could judge who were the best. Ronnie Millsap, which I didn't record him, was probably one of the best. He, you know, he was blind and had been, you know, a lot of blind people hate, make up for it by hearing. And he, he was, uh, he was, he was great. He, he was great. Loretta and her ability to write songs was great. I don't know. I recorded Dinah Shore. I had a lot of respect for her. I, you know, I don't know. I, I say, you know, we do good ones. We do bad ones. It's like publishing. We would publish good songs and bad songs, but, uh, you know, if, as long as they had a good song, I don't, I don't remember judging anybody that way. Cause you know, somebody could walk out of there with their tape and they may not have been the best singer, but they had a big hit, number one hit. And, you know, the more you hear it on the radio, the more you think you did a good job. And they did a good job. <laughs> so I never really looked at them. Though I had a lot of respect for them. I can tell you that. And had a lot of respect for the musicians, too. You know, like probably the most talented guy that I worked with, well, other than my dad, was a guy named, that guy I told you a minute ago, David Briggs from Muscle Shows. Uh, he played on all the Elvis's material once he played on the first sessions uh, but he he was uh he was one of the most talented people that i think i worked with and you know I, uh, harold bradley he was they all were. you know i didn't hire him if they wasn't good or great <laughs> <laughs> well i'm glad you've mentioned david briggs for those who look and read the the liner notes of albums you can be assured that some of the, your favorite albums, you will see him credited there. That's right. <laughs> and a fine individual, too. He's, he's, you know, I almost wouldn't do anything unless I had David. Anyhow, he was the captain of the sessions, you know, but he, he was a very talented guy. He could go out and do a CMA show with a, uh, 20, 20 piece band and then go in with nine musicians and cut a hit all in the same day. Hmm. You know, it occurs to me with all of the different acts you've had a chance to witness. And as I mentioned at the introduction with you being the head of RCA Nashville, I'd really like to get your perspective on this. Why do some people make it? in the music business and some people don't because I've had so many people, especially songwriters. They say, gosh, when I got to Nashville, I just thought if these guys aren't making it, <laughs> how am I going to make it? So why do some people make it? Well, a lot of times they try to own all the songs and they don't cut good songs. You can cut a good song, and still a great song and still not have a hit. You know, timing and the people you work with. I tell, I told Alabama when I 
sign them, you know, you need a good booking agent, you need a good manager. And uh, they didn't have either when they started. But, you know, you need to surround yourself with good people and honest people. You know, I, that's pretty much what, uh, what I tell anybody. To, uh, you know, I helped Dean Dillon when he came. First thing I told Dean, I said, Dean, I'm going to try to help you. But, uh, I said, you got something's wrong with your name. Your name is Dean Rutherford. I said, is it Rutherford or Rutherford? He said, Rutherford. I said, nobody's going to say, here comes Dean Rutherford. I said, they don't. You need to change it. And he said, well, what do you want to change it to? I said, well, let's see. You need something that's easy to remember, like Bill Anderson and uh, got two L's in it, Bill, uh, Brenda Lee. Uh, I said, what about the Old West? <laughs> what about Dean, somebody from the Old West? And I threw the telephone book up on the desk. I just started through the D's, and I stopped at Dylan. I said, Dylan. Now, Dylan was a bad guy. Dylan was a robber, bank robber. I said, Dean Dylan. Now, that, that kind of, you remember that name? And he looked at me, and he says, is that what you want to do? I said, well, I really think you ought to. So we, I named him Dean Dillon, and he went and changed his name and lived by Dean Dillon and was very successful. And in fact, he's a member. He got elected to the member of the Hall of Fame this year. That's and right. I called him. Yeah, I, I called him and congratulated him. He said, you know, we just had a little chat about it. And he reminded me. He said, yeah, I remember you, you, you uh, that, uh, got the telephone book out name me so you know it's just little little things but you got and then he surrounded himself with a guy named tom collins an honest good publishing company and then he went he came back over to me at a cup rose he had to get a at least one song in every george Strait album there was but you just got to get good people and you don't know it all and you know Waylon was Oh, he wanted to fight. I got along great with Waylon, but, you know, he, he'd like to send a message out that uh, you got to do it your way, boys. You got to do it your way. So, well, I got news for you. The Outlaw album and uh, Waylon's, Waylon and Willie's songs, my idea wasn't his. His manager didn't want to do them. You know, but. I did them anyhow because the contract said I could do them. Anyhow, I had good conversations with Waylon behind good stores, behind closed doors. Now, when when you got uh, got him, a few few of his buddies around him, and you just kind of took a slap on the cheek and moved on. But I understood that it didn't bother me. Uh, the end result was very, very good for Wayland. When I left RCA, he was one of the few artists that called me. I was out in the garage working. My wife told me, she said, Wayland's on the phone. And I said, God, why don't they leave me alone? And I went up to the phone. I had a phone in the garage. 
I answered it, and he said, Hoss, said, if there's anything I can ever do for you, give me a call. And I, I, I remember that phone call like it was yesterday. And, uh, so I know he appreciated it, but when he talks to the press, <laughs> it's funny to me. When you look at your career, what would you say that you're the most proud of? Uh, probably all the things. It went so fast. It really did. And you live from number one to number one. I mean, you, and busted an artist. You know, it, that, that's not the easiest thing in the world. But I'm proud of all of them. And I, I think the end result, the Hall of Fame, be considered to be in that thing with uh, Harold and Owen and, hell, Hank Williams, all of them. Anybody that's in there, I, I don't know how many. I meant to check when I was down there, and they're opening it back up. Uh, I need to go look at the wall because I worked with several of those people that are in there. I have no idea how many. I haven't counted them, but that's on my to-do list. Uh, but I work with a lot of those people. and uh, But, you know, there's all different kind of ways to get there, but the easiest and the best way is the song is the easiest, in my opinion. So, you know, you keep going back to the importance of a great song, and you have to agree. I mean, songs are so important. No songs, no artists, no records. There's so many right. songs that you are associated with, so many from your business dealings, from the artists that you've worked with, would it be possible to pick your favorite song of all time? Well, here lately, I like, uh, it's a Bill Anderson, Dean Dillon song, Just Give It Away by George Strait. That's, that song's probably four years old. I don't know, but I, I wanted to put that one on my phone called <laughs> just give it away. I like that song. Guys. Hey, there's a whole lot of songs. I like one by Charlie pride called burgers and fries. <laughs> it never was. It never was a big hit, but it sure sounds like a hit to me for somebody. I'm not real sure who, but I love that song. And, uh, Hey, uh, you know, Waylon, God Almighty, uh, I love to hear Waylon Jennings. I got all of it. I was trying to help develop. I wasn't trying to help develop. I was developing an image for Waylon, and I remember getting all of his album covers out and laying them on the floor and looking at them and then call out the ones that didn't look fit his image and tried to then talk to my art director to tell him what I was trying to do. But, I, I, you know, I little things like that. And, you know, what am I trying to say? The uh, Alabama, I was looking for a group. There was no group. There were the Statler brothers, but there was no band. Charlie Daniels and his band were, was a group. 
but I wanted a group's name and uh I I went I put the word out on the street I'm looking for a group. And a couple of people bought me a group, but then I heard Alabama on the radio and I think it was Randy Owen in Alabama. And I called Harold Shedd and I told Harold Shedd that uh to bring me a tape. He said, You already got one. I, Looked around and I found one that I he'd already sent. I played it and I told him to come over. I wanted to sign them, and I said, "I'm looking for a group name. I'd like to get rid of Randy Owen and Alabama, just Alabama, because disc jockeys weren't playing. If they'd play Porter Wagner, Dolly, Charlie Pride, Stadler Brothers, but they didn't have a group's name." And so I thought Alabama would fit right in there. It gives the disc jockey something else to play. And the disc jockey was changing. The disc jockey, he was driving a Cadillac or a brand new pickup truck. He wasn't into uh, his older model used car. And I forget what you call it. Sear, not a seersucker suit, but, uh, you know, he, he was beginning to dress sporty the image of the disc jockey was changing and i took notice of that and i thought oh, music's changing and that that was one of the reasons that i signed alabama and uh you know i think i was right really <laughs> so uh but uh i gave it a lot of thought but i i, I saw the music changing i saw the disc jockey change and i saw a void in what they were picking to play. So, you know, it just kind of happened. Plus, they cut down, don't get me wrong, they cut some great songs. So that's kind of how it happened. Well, Mr. Bradley, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I always like to give the guest the microphone at the end. And this isn't limited to music. It could be about anything. What would you say to anybody who is tuned in? Well, get a mask. <laughs> I hate to say it, <laughs> but I'm kind of worried about this. And, you know, uh, I'm not 20 years old no more, so I'm, I'm concerned about that. But listen to the music, accept the change in the music. Because I think my dad wrestled with some of the changes that I took part in the music. But we didn't, we never argued about it. But I, I kind of admire some of the conversations that we have had. And I later on realized that he was changing with the music that my generation made. So anyhow, I just... Keep in tune to satellite radio. You'll, you'll do just fine because they got it on. <laughs> well, Mr. Bradley, I hope we have the chance to speak again someday. Who knows, maybe when all this pandemic is over, it'll be in person. But I really appreciate you being a guest on the Paul Leslie Hour. Well, I appreciate it, Paul. I enjoyed it. All right, sir. Well, thank you again, and until next time. 
get a good song. That's all I can say. <laughs> Wise advice. <laughs>